watching Chadwick Boseman in his final movie, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, is pure heartbreak. His sterling Oscar-worthy performance switches from mischief to despair with balletic grace. Excellent review and an excellent film and an excellent performance. Johnny Oleksinski of the New York Post talking about Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. Unbelievable title. It's one of the best pictures of the year. Reviewing it, it's our feature review this week here on Cinephile. Also, Kingdom of Silence, for which I was sent a screener for. Excellent documentary on Showtime. We'll talk about that. New York film critics, LA film critics giving us some news. Mount Rushmore of holiday films because Christmas is right around the corner. Hope you get Christmas shopping done. And a great interview. George Gallo, he is the director of the new film, The Comeback Trail, starring Robert De Niro, Morgan Freeman, Tommy Lee Jones, and others. It was supposed to be released this year because of the pandemic. It got pushed back to next year, so we asked George about that. He's also the writer of Midnight Run and Bad Boys and one of my favorite holiday movies. It's called 29th Street. So George Gallo, I mean, Joe put together the interview, um, edited it, and let me tell you something. Great kept by Joe, the fact that he got him, and George could not have been uh, more warm or forthcoming. After the interview's over, he gave me his home number, gave me his email address, so I, uh, we look forward to an excellent relationship here with George Gallo, because uh, as you'll hear, 36-minute interview, longest interview we've ever done in the history of Cinephile, and he was terrific. As always, you can get in touch with us um, on Apple Podcasts. Uh, where you can post a review. Obviously, uh, I rank my movies at a former police. I appreciate if you can rank the Cinephile podcast out of five stars. Um, and as always, you can tweet me, Adnan Esferk or Cinephile Pod as well. Uh, thanks to all those who listened to last week, talk about Sound of Metal, Riz Ahmed, tremendous performance, Michael J. Fox's book. I know my friend Adam Amin loved Joe's review of uh, Recipe for Seduction. My friend Alpha saying how much Joe's going to love Sound of Metal. Uh, Doc Lou Iowa tweeting, just an FYI, nice compliment of you by Jim Miller on Richard Deitch's podcast this week. They occurred during the second and third segments. Yes, Doc Lou Iowa, I did hear that. James Andrew Miller, of course, the brilliant writer, uh, SNL. ESPN, those guys have all the fun. CAA, he's a great writer. He's been a real advocate for me, so I, I did appreciate uh, the kind words from Jim and Richard. Of course, I've done Richard Deitch's podcast several times, and you should support both those guys. They have podcast platforms right here in Cadence 13. So along with being wonderful guys who I deeply respect, they also happen to be teammates. So you can support Rich's uh, sports media podcast through Cadence 13 and, of course, Jim's work, Origins, which is his podcast. I've, of course, talked about Almost Famous and Jim, uh, a recent guest here on the podcast a few months ago here on Cinefile. All right, let's dive in to Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. Chicago, 1927, a recording session. Tensions rise between Ma Rainey, her ambitious horn player, and the white management determined to control the uncontrollable mother of the blues, based on Pulitzer Prize winner August Wilson's play. So you know the name August Wilson because you know the name Denzel Washington. He was incredible in Fences, as was Viola Davis. Viola Davis won an Oscar for her performance as Best Actress. Denzel was nominated, did not win. But August Wilson is a great, great playwright, and uh, Denzel and Viola Davis did the play on stage and then adapted it, and clearly Denzel is very passionate about the work of this playwright, so he produced this film, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. It's directed by George C. Wolfe and... My first concern was this, okay, adaptation of a play, they're often stagey. You know, oftentimes it can just feel very lived in and very static and didactic. But the good news is when it when it soars, it can really take flight, like Glengarry, Glenn Ross, or Doubt adaptations, uh, both plays are turned into movies. So in the case of Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, yes, you're aware that it's based in a play. It never really leaves the recording studio. But it doesn't matter because the performances are so strong, the writing is so delicate, and it's so specific to that time and place. Um, it really makes you feel like you're a part of that society where, yeah, the North in 1927 um, 
it's not as segregated as the South, doesn't seem as openly racist, but you can clearly tell what the power structure's like, and obviously black people are not being treated fairly. And then in walks Ma Rainey, this swaggering behemoth of a woman. And if you see Violet Davis in person, I mean, she did a great interview on 60 Minutes, L. John Wertheim, who is uh, the best tennis writer alive. And I actually texted John about the interview he did with Viola Davis. And he said, you know, she was so good. He said, most of these athletes we talk to, you can never get them to say anything. Viola Davis never stopped talking. She was awesome. And she tells great stories. And you see her in real life. I mean, she's a beautiful woman. You see her here. She's got, you know, this heavy eye makeup, mascara, eyeliner, put on a bunch of weight, wearing a fat suit, wearing gold teeth. Like, it's unbelievable. It just, just disappears into the role. And it's one of these great swaggering performances, a big, bold, brassy blue singer who's not going to take any crap, who, who's willing to push back against authority and she knows that she she runs the show she's one of the few black people that era running the show that she can call the shots she can push people around so she's going to get things done damn it and that means that she's not going to record the song until she gets a coca-cola because it's hot out here so get me that coke uh one of the many funny scenes in the movie and early on it's got a real strong comedic sense because chadwick boseman's character he seems like one of these needlers you know young guy talking smack a little bit um Seems like he's anti-authority, wants to be his own guy. It feels like you know when you're watching a band, you say, okay, he might be a supporting character, but eventually he's going to leave and create his own band because he's just got too strong a personality. And in some ways, a positive, he's just too talented to be marginalized. But Bozeman, you know, throughout the movie, that morphs into something different. As Oleg Sensky said in his review, he goes from being mischief to a character of real sadness and poignance. And I just thought the pathos of both of these characters is so deeply rendered. Um, it's just an incredible acting showcase from Viola Davis and Chadwick Bozeman. And Bozeman, I know the cynics are going to say, well, of course he's the front runner right now to win Best Actor because he's dead. They're going to give it to him posthumously. It's a recognition of his wonderful career, not only playing James Brown and Get On Up or Jackie Robinson in 42 or being in Black Panther. And now that he's passed away, unfortunately, we'll give him the recognition he deserves. But I'm telling you right now, will that play a part? Obviously. But it's a great performance. It really is. And if he was alive, he'd be nominated for Best Actor. Maybe he'd still win. And Viola Davis is absolutely going to get nominated. She might win Best Actress. I mean, I went into the movie knowing Viola Davis was supposed to be commanding, but I walked away really being deeply moved by Bozeman and the real depths of his character and the real sincerity and the real sadness of what people at that time had to go through. A um, couple other reviews here. This is one from Eamon Warman of Empire. Bozeman and Davis deliver superb performances in this timeless meditation on black art and those who would exploit it. Yet another fine adaptation of an August Wilson play. And also Jennifer Green of Common Sense Media. Ma Rainey's Black Bottom is a tough film made more emotionally intense by the actor's soulful performances and the hard truths at the core of the story. One other thing you know I like, especially if you listen to this podcast all the time, like a nice tight story. So again, I worry about stagey adaptations. Well, guess what? It's only 87 minutes. And with dialogue from August Wilson and acting like Viola Davis and Chadwick Boseman, you can't go wrong. It's one of the best pictures of the year. That's why I'm giving it three and a half Maple Leafs. And just some background when it comes to, you know, exactly how this was put together. Mark Simon uh, who had not commented on Cinephon for a month, so I assumed he'd stop listening. He did pass along these notes from George Wolfe, the director. He said the transcript is basically, well, no, he's talked about the visual setting, a mood throughout the movie, things like the neighborhood where the recording studio is when they go to a deli, it's a Polish deli. The idea that they were in an area where they did not belong. I'm quoting Wolf. There's a sense of territorialism that is really fascinating. There are signs in the South saying colored and white. There are no signs up North, but there's just as much territorialism to this very day as to where you belong and where you don't belong. 
There's a table that Moss sits at during a couple different parts of the movie. You can't see it, but there's a Vanity Fair magazine on the table. It's from 1926, and there's an article in it that identified Bessie Smith and others, but not Ma, as the preeminent blues singer in New York. It's clear that she is in the process of being usurped. And as for the visuals, which I didn't think stood out necessarily... But Wolf said this, everything is a clue, some things are really thrilling clues, and you just have to distinguish that which is important and that which is not. What is indisputable, Joe, is Ma Rainey's Black Bottom is an important movie and a powerful movie, and I recommend it to everyone on Netflix. Your thoughts? I, I, I couldn't agree with you more, and just Chadwick Boseman, the fact that this is his final movie as well, I, I definitely agree. I think that will play a big uh, influence for his Oscar nominations. And my question to you is, you know, he could also get a best supporting nomination for the five bloods. Do you, do you think there is a world where he could get both supporting and lead actor at next year's Oscars? Yeah, there is a world, Joe. I think the, either the LA film critics, the New York film critics, um, did not give him best actor, but then gave him best supporting actor. And I, I don't think his performance in the five bloods is nearly as strong as Ma Rainey's black bottom, but is it a good performance? Yeah. And I'm a fan of Defy Bloods. That's in my top 10 films of the year. So, yes, I think he's got a better chance of winning Best Actor for this film, but he could get nominated for Defy Bloods. It's rare to see, and I don't believe posthumously I've ever seen an actor nominated for both. Um, you know, Peter Finch famously won for Network for Best Actor after he passed away. Heath Ledger, we all know, won for Best Supporting Actor. I don't know if there's a posthumous actor who was nominated for two performances, much less one of those. So I have to look into that. But, yes, I, it could happen. I mean, it's... Um, it's a really powerful movie, and it's a very timely movie. I'm sure you can appreciate after the 2020 that we went through, a lot of what these characters are going through, these African-American characters who are underserved and deprived and frustrated, all those same angst-ridden issues still exist 100 years later. Yeah, it's amazing how many movies ha have been made or you know that I've rewatched this year that even 50 years after or you know 100 years after it's still happening today and it's just so poignant to the history of, of musicians at that time to black america at that time and how we got to this point so i think it's just a much must watch not just for the performances the direction the writing but also just you know contextually how america got to where it is that's really well said good call joe i'm glad you and i are both on board with ma rainey's black bottom amazing title by the way i know we've already done the mount rushmore titles but that's a title that's going to stick huh one more movie before we get some entertainment news kingdom of silence documentary on showtime it takes a panoramic view of jamal khashoggi's career and its impact in u.s saudi relations yielding a sobering account of one man's life and the two nations he straddled I wasn't necessarily intrigued by the subject matter, but I've been to Saudi Arabia. I went there literally a year ago, and so I said, okay, maybe I'll have a different perspective on this film because at least I've seen Saudi Arabia. You know, obviously I can't speak to U.S.-Saudi relations. I'm not in the room here. I'm not talking to the royal family, but it is interesting experiencing that world. So maybe I enjoyed this film more than others because having been to Saudi Arabia, again, I can appreciate the visuals, the vistas, the culture, the society, the way that they've changed. You know, 60% of Saudi Arabia's population is 25 and under. So they're really trying to push towards millennials. Like, hey, we've got to be more progressive here. Like, how are women not driving? What are we doing? How, how are movie theaters closed up until a few years ago? It's crazy. So what's been a very repressive society, repressive regime, and they've tried to open up a little bit. And uh, unfortunately, it's not all good news. And as the documentary does an excellent job of showing, Saudi Arabia has always been a very important ally for the United States of America because of the fact it is such an oil-rich country. Now, that doesn't seem to be a surprise, but they say, listen, when, when, the, when Russia invaded Afghanistan, it was very critical that America was on the side of the Saudis and, you know, used their force, et cetera. So they really do run that side of the world, the Middle East, 
everything's run through Saudi Arabia because of the, the royal family and the money and all the rest of it. And so the U.S. has always been in bed with the Saudis. And they literally go, showing you Jimmy Carter, Ronald Reagan, um, you know, whatever the president's been, they've always been trying to curry favor with them. And in exchange for that and all that oil money is the fact that there's going to be some duplicitous behavior. And what happened to Jamal Khashoggi, you know, a Saudi, you know, working for the, the Washington Post, it's amazing to see the background on this. The fact that he was friends with Osama bin Laden. In fact, he was very supportive of bin Laden, especially early on. He thought he was a smart guy. He appreciated his ideals, his passion. But then Khashoggi realized, no, this guy's flipped his lid. He's nuts. He's a terrorist and he's gone too far and he's not someone I can support. And Khashoggi would write, you know, very critical things about bin Laden, about the Saudi government, the royal family, etc., because he felt that was his duty, and, and he wasn't being obnoxious about it. He was just a journalist, and a journalist has to, as old-fashioned as it may sound, fight for the ideals, fight for righteousness, fight for justice. And as the documentary makes very clear, he suffered the ultimate price, and he was killed. And the stories are awfully jarring when you actually hear about, you know, Khashoggi's final few hours and the fact that he was drawn somewhere and clearly, with, you know, with his captors, probably somebody new, had him in this situation and just, I mean, beheaded. I mean, this was not, hey, we'll give you a couple pills and put you to bed. This was a horrific, terrible way to die. And um, it's just heartbreaking to see what this guy did and how he was treated for literally telling the truth and how it's something that was completely glossed over and Trump's regime and Trump obviously being indicted with the fact he's in bed with the Saudis, all the rest of it. So there's lots to appreciate about this film. And I agree with Leslie Felperin of The Hollywood Reporter, respectful but not hagiographic. Hey, Wasn't trying to make Khashoggi into Walter Cronkite. It's just saying this is a very sad situation. And here's how it happened. Richard Roper, Chicago Sun-Times. As much about the complicated, codependent, sometimes toxic relationship between the United States and Saudi Arabia as about the man himself, and Nick Shager of the Daily Beast. Aided by an impressive roster of participants, it provides a clear and enraging picture of the tangled geopolitical dynamics which Khashoggi helped define and which ultimately ensnared him. Three May Police for Kingdom of Silence. Joe? Yeah, another movie that seems like an important watch just, you know, f to, to educate yourself on the geopolitical dynamics between Saudi Arabia and the U.S. How, how do you how did you feel watching it having I mean, I know you just kind of went into it, but you having gone to Saudi Arabia and seeing everything firsthand and just getting a sense of that environment. Like, can you try, uh, could, could you try and put yourself through what he was going through while watching it? Yeah, I mean, it did help, I think, Joe, that prior to going, you know, I had all the images, most of it. Like, I'm thinking of Lawrence of Arabia, right? Like, I don't know what to expect. I'm picturing this, you know, backwards country and, um, you know, very authoritarian. And in fact, it seemed a lot more progressive. You know, the fact that I found a Tim Hortons, for God's sakes, in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia, like, this is incredible. Like, I can, I mean, granted, I didn't have, uh, the, the appropriate currency on me, but I'm like, man, I could just go in there and get a double double, and we're good to go. I mean, that was that was amazing to me walking the strip and seeing Applebee's or seeing a Nike store. Like I thought, oh wow, I I had this old image of Saudi Arabia, so I could definitely appreciate how it seemed more progressive, less restrictive. Um, but still, while watching the doc, I realized just because it looks like it's good on the outside doesn't reveal what's happening inward. So there was definitely a lot of uh, turmoil going on, and, and I wasn't naive to think that wasn't happening, but maybe I had more appreciation having been to that, uh, that part of the world. All right, that is uh, a couple of reviews here for you. Let's do some entertainment news before we get to our man, George Gallo. New York film critics, here we go. Once they start giving out the prizes, you know what's going to win, or at least have an idea of it. Best picture, are you kidding me? Kelly Reichert's first cow. Released theatrically in March. Moo. VOD released later in the year. I swear to God, Joe, I watched 10 minutes of First Cow. Because I know it got rave reviews. Critics are losing their mind. 99% Rotten Tomatoes, whatever it is. Couldn't get through it. 
I mean, now I'm like, God, I have to go watch this movie now. I mean, this is, I'm not going to watch enough just for the New York Film Critics. If it gets nominated for a bunch of Oscars, I'll have to watch it. But I've been telling you right now, this is about as boring a movie as it could get. All right? I appreciate a good period piece, but it's a bunch of just old Western settlers involving a cow. I mean, that, as soon as I saw that one best picture, I go, okay, clearly this has been a bad year. Or the New York film critics have just lost their mind. The uh, Five Bloods, very happy to see it. One best actor, Delroy Lindo. Tremendous. Best supporting actor, Chadwick Boseman. Again, for the same film. Great news for Spike Lee. Never, rarely, sometimes, always. Again, which I found awfully boring and just trudge through that that one best screenplay for its writer director Aliza Hittman now the one film that I really want to see Nomadland I think that's the Oscar frontrunner uh that one best director for Chloe Jaw love the pick for supporting actress Borat's daughter Tutar that's Maria Bakalova she wins I love seeing that win for Borat subsequent movie film uh the small axe anthology in Amazon Prime that collectively won for best cinematography five films by Steve McQueen and Time won the best nonfiction film that also won from the LA Film Critics so haven't seen enough documentaries this year but I'm going to see Time at some point because that one uh, I know Soul got the runner-up for best animated film from LA Film Critics that's opening on Christmas Day so New York Film Critics listen they definitely know their stuff okay a season ago, they praised Parasite, which ended up winning Best Picture. They they called Laura Dern supporting actress. They gave Joe Pesci supporting actor, which was a great pick. Didn't end up happening for the Oscars. And Antonio Banderas, they gave Best Actor, but he was nominated for Pain and Glory after his nomination. So this at least gives an indication of what's going to happen. And the L.A. film creates even more of an indication. The Small Axe Anthology from Steve McQueen. Again, the two films that really got a lot of love um, is uh, Mangrove. was the first, first part of the anthology. It's five... Five in total. Mangrove is two hours. The others are all about an hour apiece. So you got to, you know, you have to dedicate six hours to watching this. But that one, best picture from the LA Film Critics, best actor, I believe, was Bozeman. But the supporting, but the runner-up for best actor, my man Riz Ahmed. So I was thrilled to see that. The fact he was runner-up for best actor for Sound of Metal, my favorite movie so far in 2020. That's great news. And best actress again. It's going to be Viola Davis. It could be Frances McDormand. Chloe Jaw again won best director for Nomadland. So these are the movies, Joe. When it comes all said and done, you know we're taping this here late December. This week we're going to see a lot more of these movies released. But when you're thinking Oscar picks, here are the ones. The, the, the film critics clearly given their picks for the likes of Nomadland, Defy Bloods, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, and Small Axe. I'm going to have to get on Small Axe. Hopefully try to review that for next week from Steve McQueen. But this is a real indication of what's going to happen with the Oscars, even though they're not going to happen until. Late March. Right. And the 2019 winner for best film was Parasite, and that went on to win the best picture at the Oscars. So it'll be interesting to see how it stacks up. But to your point, a lot more movies to be released. Hopefully, you don't have to see all of First Cow in its entirety. So hopefully, it doesn't get the nomination. But I am uh, excited to see Nomadland. I mean, that seems to be the benchmark for this year that everyone keeps you know, going back to as a reference point. So I can't form an opinion until I see that movie myself. What about you? A hundred percent. I'm going to try to do my top 10 movies of the year. Now I can't do it next week because not all these movies have come in yet. Like I'm waiting for these screeners. I've gotten two screeners so far. So I've got it to your point. I've got to see One Night in Miami. I've got to see Nomadland. So until I see these movies, there's no way I can give you my top 10 movies of 2020. I may have to give you my top 10 of 2020, you know, in like uh, early February of 2021. I mean, I got to see these movies first. So I'm with you. The one for me that I want to see all year long, it's on every top 10 list, is Nomadland. And so these critics are not uh, they're not fooling around when it comes to this movie. It's going to be a big Oscar heavyweight. Not only Francis McDormand, but I love David Strathairn. He's a great actor. He could be up for supporting actor as well. One more bit of entertainment news before we get to our boy Gallo. Army Hammer. He signed on a star in The Offer at Paramount Plus, which will tell the behind-the-scenes story of making of The Godfather. Yes! 
Hammer is starring as Al Ruddy, who produced The Godfather back in 1972. The series will focus on Ruddy's experience on the set of the iconic mob drama, with Ruddy also set to serve as executive producer on the 10-episode limited series. Michael Tolkien is writing and executive producing the offer. I just received in the mail Godfather Coda, The Death of Michael Corleone, which I bought from Barnes & Noble. So on the next Cinephile, I'm going to hopefully review Godfather 3. That's right, recut, re-edited by Francis Ford Coppola 30 years after the fact. New opening, new ending, and now we're getting more Godfather material. I love it, Joe. I'm all in on this. <laughs> Plain and simple. I'm, I'm all in on this. I really like Army, Army Hammer as an actor too. So, you know, the behind the scene, every all the stories you've heard from the set, it'll be interesting to see it in a limited series. Now, hopefully, it's not like the show Vinyl on HBO. Hopefully, it's oh. much cooler than that. Like that was a show that had the potential to be really cool. So I'm really just hoping that this doesn't follow that road. Yeah, Vinyl was awful, especially when you have Marty involved, Bobby Cannavale, just terrible. But Army Hammer, call me by your name. Hopefully he'll bring the heat. This guy definitely did. The director of the new film, The Comeback Trail, the writer of Midnight Run and Bad Boys, George Gallo is coming up after the break, plus the Mount Rushmore of holiday films. Pleasure once again here on Cinephile. I'm your host, Adnan Verk. It's a pleasure to talk to George Gallo. You know his name and you know his movies. Wise Guys, Midnight Run, one of my favorite comedies ever, Bad Boys, and his new film is called The Comeback Trail. That's right. He's reuniting with Robert De Niro. George, first and foremost, thank you for the time. How are you holding up during this crazy time in our lives? Well, for me, it's not all that much different because I'm, I'm a bit of a recluse anyway. So it's... Uh you know, and, and all I do is, uh, you know, I stay home and I write a lot anyway. So, you know, and then, and then my wife, Julie, she loves to cook. So our life hasn't changed that much. Like she, you know, she, her and I are here at the house and I'm writing and then we have uh, lunch and dinner together. So it's, it's, uh, it's not that much different except I have to dress up like a beekeeper to go to the supermarket. <laughs> You do have to have just a lot of uh, a lot of wardrobe that you wouldn't normally be accustomed to having. You're right about that. A lot of facial protection. Yeah, I mean, I've got the hand sanitizer constantly. I mean, I, I hope that the uh, you know that the hand sanitizer doesn't cause cancer or something. Because I mean, like I'm putting it on on my hands, on my face, on uh, yeah, just everything. So yeah, you're just anyway. in, a, in a full lather. It just has replaced soap at this point. It's just sanitizer everywhere. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, yes. So I was dying to see the comeback trail. I saw the trailer for it. I, I adore Robert De Niro. I've interviewed Bob before here on the podcast. And proof of, by the way, what a huge fan he is of Midnight Run and of you. You know, the guy's made, as you know, hundreds of movies. And whenever he's asked his favorite movies, which, by the way, is an impossible question to ask an actor. But his answer was, he goes, well, I like Raging Bull and I like Midnight Run. Like, th those are the wow. two movies of all the movies he could have said, you know, Taxi Driver and Goodfellas and all the rest of it. So he obviously was thrilled to reunite with you. Like I said, the movie, unfortunately, has been pushed back to 2021, but I love the trailer. I can't wait to see it. Tell me about working with Bob again. Well, you know, Bob and I stayed close over all the years. You know, we, uh, and we always talked about doing something together. We just could never figure out what it was. And, uh, you know, I worked on a couple of projects that I, I didn't get credit for. Um, but I, you know, I did, a, I did a fair amount of work on, on analyze this, uh, you know, uh, but, you know, I mean, I just wrote basically jokes, you know, stuff like that. Yeah. But, uh, but like, you know, we stayed in touch and, and, 
uh, it was, you know, and then and then out of the blue, he called me, you know, uh, a year ago, uh, like last January, and he had just finished The Irishman, and you know, like I said, we were chatting back and forth, and uh, he said to me, "Do I have anything funny?" He says, "I've been playing a psychopath for." Uh, like eight months, you know, and he goes, I got to cleanse the palate. I got to just do something really funny. And I said, look, I've got this very left-handed script that I wrote with Josh Posner. And it's, it's based on a movie that's no, but that no one has ever seen because the movie never officially was finished or released, which is an interesting story in in of itself, uh, the, the original comeback trail. And, uh, you know, but I saw a screening of it when it was like, uh, you know, like it was, like I say, not finished, uh, when I was like 18 years old. But anyway, I sent him the script and he called me a couple of days later and he goes, George, the script is hysterical. And I said, yeah, I said, it's, it's definitely a little out there. It's a little left-handed. It's a little different, you know, and he said, I'm in. And so then boom, suddenly the movie came together. Well, listen, the fact that you're back with De Niro again, I mean, he's one of these actors, like I said, I've only met him the one time, had a great conversation with him. He's very smart. He's very intuitive. And one thing you know about Bob is he's he's very well researched and he's going to go into detail with whatever he's doing. It does there's no throwaway piece with him and he likes to challenge himself with different material. For the comeback trail, again, for those who haven't seen the trailer, check it out. It looks hilarious cuz it's one of these inside Hollywood movies and just his mustache and the glasses. Was there any characters or maybe real life people he was focusing on, not like Robert Evans per se, but other producers or people in Hollywood that he was drawing on his own experiences he was telling you about? Well, yeah, I mean, it's sort of funny because, you know, he started out, I think his earliest movies he did with Roger Corman, you know, and uh, so he plays this very bottom-feeding producer from the 1970s. The movie takes place in 1974. So we both knew, uh, you know, because I was living in New York, to, you know, uh, we both knew a lot of the same, you know, sort of low-rent producers. <laughs> we knew these guys. So it was sort of a, you know, he was sort of, you know, doing a kind of a, you know, some imitations of people that both of us knew. Um, so, uh, yeah, but I mean, that whole cra- that crazy kind of Einstein look he's got with the cap and the, the crazy white hair and the mustache and the sideburns. I mean, it's, uh, and the way he dressed, uh, I mean, yeah, I mean, his attention to detail, he's incredibly meticulous and, uh, uh, you know, we just were, we had so much fun. We were laughing all the time trying to pick out the the wardrobe. He would send me pictures of it. He goes, what do you think of his hat? What do you think of his shirt? I mean, it's, it was just a lot of fun, you know. Uh, I could see that just from the trailer alone. It looks hysterical. Once again, the movie's been pushed back to sometime early in 2021. We don't have an exact date. Maybe it's March. Maybe it's April. What's that been like for you? You know this is a good movie, George, and unfortunately you're going to push this back. I'm sure as a filmmaker, you want to see your product seen as soon as possible. Are you able to manage it better than most, or are you frustrated throwing things at the wall and saying, man, why can't my movie just come out in theaters? Why can't we just get back to normal? Well, yeah, I mean, it's... It is a little frustrating, but you look, I, I, look I, I try to keep all this stuff in check. I mean, like, there's people out in the world that have, like, real problems, you know, and, like, you know, me whining about when's my movie coming out that seems, like, pretty low on the scale of things to, you know, in the universe in terms of importance. But, I mean, you know, uh, look, the movie, I had the, the pleasure of seeing the movie with a crowd before, just before all the COVID stuff really hit the fan, you know, when I had a... I had a couple of the, the very last cut that I had. I screened for about a hundred people, and it, the reaction was t- 
terrific, you know, and, and so I said, okay, so I felt very comfortable locking the picture. In the meantime, it, it played, uh, the finished uh, movie played at the Monte Carlo Film Festival, which we won, and then, uh, and then, and then we also played at the Palm Springs Comedy Film Festival, and we won that also. So, I mean, I mean, people look. It's a, it's an old fashioned crowd pleaser. That's that's what the movie was designed to be. You know, it's just, it's a throwback to like those seventies movies. It takes place in the nineteen seventies. I tried very close to like emulate that kind of film style. You know, uh, like Arthur Hiller directed a bunch of wonderful comedies in the seventies, like Silver Streak uh, and The In Laws. So, you know, I wasn't just trying to make a movie about the you know seventies. I was also trying to, you know, adapt some of those filmmaking styles. You know, it's not very cutty. You know, like you know, movies in the nineties started to get very boom, 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 boom with cuts. This is more longer takes and you know, fluid kind of camera stuff, and it's. Uh, you know, it's shot with a lot of master shots, you know, like a lot of those films were shot, you know, uh, where the physical comedy is just, uh, you know, done in done in masters. It's not like cut, 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 cut. So uh, I had to reprogram my brain a little bit, you know, in terms of how to stage everything. But it, it, I, it's, it's a terrific movie. I'm very, very proud of it. I can't wait to see it. Once again, it's going to be opening in early 2021. It's funny you mentioned Silver Streak. You know, the pandemic has allowed us to catch up with movies we've just missed over the years. And I love 70s movies. And I was just upset with myself. I'd never seen Silver Streak, so I finally saw it. I mean, that you are right about the way it's cut. The, the, the comedies today, you're right. It's just boom, boom, boom. Insert here, close up here, reaction shot here. Silver Streak, I mean, there's a lot of cutaways. Is this the train going and just a static camera and I mean listen the scenes with Gene Wilder and Richard Pryor when he's teaching him how to you know pretend like he's black is just one of the funniest things ever so oh, no, yeah you know and you know that's a classic example like if I'm not mistaken that 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 scene like the camera drifted across the bathroom and then kind of came up to him at the mirror and then it was over shoulder into the mirror and then back onto his face and then it, it was it was all done in a very you know matter of fact you know, kind of an elegant way of, of, of storytelling. But there's another movie that Arthur Hill directed called The In-Laws uh, with Peter Falk and Alan Arkin, which is, is really one of my favorite comedies of all time. And that movie is also very simply and, and very intelligently shot. You know, it's not, it's not relying on a lot of tricks. And so the actors really have to bring it all the time. So that's that's very much what we were, which we tried to do here. We were always talking about that kind of style of filmmaking, and just let let the actors play, just let it play out, let it play out. I mean, you know, at one point we're thinking like, is this like risky because you know people today have become sort of accustomed to a certain kind of uh, cutting style, but we were like, no, 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 screw it. Let let's 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 stick to our guns and let's really just you know do what we set out to do. So. Uh, and again, like I say, you know, what ends up happening is if it's not so self-consciously made, you know, and it's just more told, I think, you know, if you surrender to a movie like that, you know, you forget you're watching a movie because it's not so self-conscious all the time. You know, it's like you just sort of get drawn into it. Yeah, exactly. So, it's not uh, telling you how smart it is or how funny it is or laugh here. It's just it's just presenting the situation, which I think is a really smart approach. We're talking with George Gallo. The film is called The Comeback Trail. It's coming out early in 2021. Let's circle back to the beginning, George. I found this fascinating, this tidbit that my producer Joe passed along. Originally a graphic art student, Gallo was inspired by Martin Scorsese's Mean Streets to take a film appreciation course and got hooked 
When the college informed him that in order to switch majors, he'd have to do his first year studies over, he dropped out and wrote Wise Guys instead. It took five years to get the screenplay produced. In the meantime, Gallo continued writing while supporting himself with odd jobs. There's a lot to chew on there. First and foremost, what was it about Marty's Mean Streets, a movie that many of us love, that particularly captivated you? You know, again, it's... Yeah, I was, and I still, you know, I still am an artist and still a painter. You know, I mean, I still have art shows, and I, you know, I was very, I was very serious about it. And I was doing portraits and landscape paintings, and I studied, uh, I studied with an old Russian master. I mean, I just thought I was going to be a bohemian artist, and then, yeah, my life changed. I went to some film festival in New York, the uh, Italian American organization that that my family was involved in, and I. Uh, uh, we saw they screened Mean Streets, and I, it was so captivating and riveting, and you know the the combination of of music and sound, and obviously a guy that would eventually become my friend Robert De Niro. You know, I was I was just like, holy cow, this is like, this is really something I I could sink my teeth into, and and but then you ask yourself, how how the hell am I ever gonna make a movie? Because you know, to be a painter, all you need is a brush and. Uh, you know, some paint in the canvas and, but, you know, to be a filmmaker, you need like an army of people and you need money and backing. So then, then began my sort of journey to want to become a filmmaker. And then, yeah, I was, uh, I was attending, uh, uh, college and they told me that, uh, you know, I couldn't switch majors. And then I said, ah, screw it. I'll just figure out how to, I mean, look, I, you look when I look back at it, it it's, there's something wonderful about being young because you're just so naive and you're bulletproof. And, uh, you know, and then I would think, well, how hard could it be to write a screenplay? And I was, which is obviously such a, you know, a naive thought, you know, but, uh, you know, I start, I studied, uh, movies and read every book I could on screenwriting. And I wrote wise guys. Yeah. I wrote wise guys. And then I tried to peddle it. I actually wrote a script before wise guys, um, uh, called Pros and Cons, which I, I don't, do you want to hear the story about how I sold my first screenplay? I mean, absolutely. Uh, Please do. Okay. Well, I wrote a script called Pros and Cons, which was, uh, uh, another comedy. And, uh, uh, when I finished it, I didn't know what to do with it. And, and I have sort of a, like a file cabinet, uh, memory where I, 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 I know a lot of, I knew a lot of, or still do, uh, you know, movie trivia, and I know credits, and I know who did what, and who wrote what, and who shot what, and so I looked at the New York phone book, and I found Arthur J. Ornitz's uh, phone number, A.J. Ornitz, who was a cinematographer who did uh, a lot of movies for Sidney Lumet, and I called him up, and uh, I said, look, I don't know what I'm doing, I just finished my first screenplay, he was very gracious, obviously, to not hang up on me, and uh he said, uh, he goes, well, obviously you don't know what you're doing if you're sending, you know, if you're calling up a cameraman. He goes, but uh, uh, I'll read your screenplay. And he read it, and he called me back a week or two later, and he said, uh, kid, uh, you really know how to write dialogue. And I said, thank you. I said, well, what do I do now? And he goes, well, I want to meet you. So we went and had lunch in, in, in New York, and, and uh, he said, you know what? He goes, I'm going to, let's go over to Marty Bregman's office. So we got over a cab, we went over to Martin Bregman's office, and Marty Bregman was a producer who did Serpico and Dog Day Afternoon and would eventually do Scarface and a lot of other films. And he introduced me to Marty, and he said, this kid can really write. And Bregman read the screenplay, and he optioned it. And so my first script, I, I got very, very lucky. It, my script was optioned by Universal. The movie never got made. 
But I did meet some people early on, and then I figured, all right, you know, then I wrote Wise Guys, and then it took quite a few years, but then eventually I moved out to California, and um, the movie got made, and then obviously I had the beginnings of a career. And then I, I wrote, uh, the next one I wrote was Bad Boys, but that didn't get made for a bunch of years. I wrote Bad Boys, and I sold that to Paramount, and then I wrote Midnight Run. I, I'm, I, I, I am aviophobic. I don't like to fly. And uh, that thing that Grodin does in Midnight Run where he stops a plane, I mean, today if you did that, I'm sure, you know, uh, you know, I'd be in jail. But I, a plane started to roll down, you know, you know, and I had a panic attack. And I said, bring the gate back. i got to get off. And they said, uh, no, no, you're, you have a seat. And I said, no, you don't understand. I'm getting off the plane. And they let me off. And I, it was very embarrassing. And uh, but I said to myself, you know what? I have to write about what I know, and I certainly know aviophobia. So I, I started to invent this storyline about the, this guy that wouldn't fly and the bounty hunter. And obviously, we know what Midnight Run turned into, but that's where that came from. Well, that's um, amazing. First off, Marty Bregman, legendary figure, because he was Pacino's guy. I mean, Pacino's manager, like you said, Serpico, Dog Afternoon. He's got such presence. I was just watching a Scarface documentary the other day. He's got that big, deep voice, and you know, the dark. Yeah, look. yeah, Martin Bregman. Yeah, Martin Bregman. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You almost. Like, I'm always shocked. I mean, he wasn't an actor. I'm like, how was Marty Bregman not an actor? He looks like he should have been in the movies rather than been the producer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But let's go to Midnight Run uh, again. That conceit, sure. which you just talked about, that the right, what you know. I mean, it was the first time I really saw Bob genuinely funny, like a true comedy. And he's hysterical, obviously, the bounty hunter. But Groden is just such a nervous Nelly. And he's got so many different obsessions, uh, phobias, etc. Their chemistry is amazing. And I adore Dennis Farina. Like, what I need to know is how much of that dialogue was scripted, how much of it was Farina. Like, is this more on number one, put more on number two on the phone? You know, all, all that dialogue. How much of that were you able to script? How much of it did you give those guys leeway? You know, again, you know, it's interesting. A lot of it, again, look, all writers are taters, but this is really the truth. A lot of it was written. Um, some of it was written on the fly because I was on the set every day. Uh, you know, Marty Brest and I, we were, we, we really got along. We, we were very, very close. And that really was my directing school. I was on that set every day watching how that movie came together. So a lot of those jokes I came up with on the fly. I was just sitting there, you know, and like Bob would come up to me and say, well, you know, can I say something funny or is there something, some bit I can do here? So a lot of those things like, you know, it's a $10 fine for jaywalking in Los Angeles when they pull them into the car. I mean, all a lot of that stuff I just came up with, like on the spot, you know, like Marty would say, is there a bit here? Or Bob would say, and I, I would throw something on moron number one, moron number two. I don't know if that was in the script or that was something we came up with on the set, you know. Um, but uh, you know, because but I, like I say, I was I was very much a part of it and honored to be a part of it. And Marty was not, you know, as a director, he wasn't one of those guys that like coveted, you know, the director thing. Not not that I had anything to do with choosing the camera angles. And I mean, he really directed the movie. I just sat quietly and watched, but. You know, I was there in terms of like uh, he would turn to me from time to time and say, "Is there a bit here? Is there something we could, you know, something funny we could do here? Is there a moment here?" So, um, you know, in, in that regard, he was very, 
you know, gracious and collaborative. And, and you know, I, I think the only way, especially with a comedy, you know, it's like, it's always like if you get around a bunch of very like-minded people, um, and, you know, it's look, a hearty laugh between a bunch of friends is always better than laughing alone. And when you're making a film, and, and you spend, like I say, especially a comedy, it's a very collaborative thing where you have a thought, and then the person, the actor has a thought, and they make it better, and then you embellish on that, and they embellish on, you know, and everyone is just working together. And there was a lot of that. You know, in Midnight Run, there was a lot of that in Comeback Trail. You know, I just told them, I said, look, you don't hire Robert De Niro and then Tommy Lee Jones and Morgan Freeman and Zach Braff and Neil Hirsch, Eddie Griffin. You don't put all those people in a room and then, you know, tie them down in any way. You just cut them all loose and, and that, I, and then, you know, you just film it, you know? <laughs> no question about it. So we go back with your yeah. career now. You're right, Wise Guys. You're right, Midnight Run. And then you wrote and directed 29th Street, which is a film, George, I absolutely love. And every year people ask me, okay, you got this podcast in a file, big movie geek. What are your favorite Christmas movies? And every year I tell them, I love Bad Santa. I love Scrooge. I love It's a Wonderful Life. But I really love this movie called 29th Street. And it pisses me off when they say, what's that? I haven't heard of that. And one of my dear friends is Ben Lyons. His dad Dad is Jeffrey Lyons, a great New York film critic, and I never forgot his blurb, which might have been one of the reasons why I saw your movie, because he said, 29th Street, it's a cross between It's a Wonderful Life and Goodfellas. And I said, well, I love yeah. Goodfellas. Anthony LaPaglia is in this. Oh, Danny Aiello, I loved him and Do the Right Thing. Film comes out in 1991, Frank Pesh's Life, you write and direct it. I think it's a brilliant movie. I, I think it might be the best movie you've made. Tell me all about 29th Street. Thanks. Um, yeah, I have a, a tremendous amount of love for that film um you know it's it's funny i mean how it came about or or uh yeah how'd you first get i mean that whole story of this like lovable loser his dad's a loser the lottery yeah well i mean that. i met that guy you know I, I met him on the set of midnight run you know um and uh he started telling me this story that he was a lottery finalist and uh, i said is this true and he, he said yeah yeah and he started telling me the story and he told me how he got stabbed. He was dating this uh, a Puerto Rican girl up in Spanish Harlem, and then he got stabbed. But if he didn't get stabbed, they wouldn't have known that he had cancer, and then he beat cancer, and he had all this weird luck. You know, like, but things that on the surface didn't appear to be lucky, but then they would turn out to be lucky. So, you know, if uh, it was certainly, if you didn't believe in God, you'd have you'd start to rethink a lot of that because of like, boy, you know, like God definitely seemed to be guiding him in some strange way. You know, like what something that would appear to be terrible ended up being good. But anyway, I just thought it was a fascinating story. And then I, right after Midnight Run, yeah, that was the next thing I wrote, and uh, uh, Joe Roth. Uh, at, who was at 20th Century Fox uh, said he wanted to give me a shot at being a director, and I, I said, "Look, I, I would love to take the warmth of a of a Frank Capra movie." That's what I had. It's very funny because Jeffrey Lines said it in his quote, but I really, I did want to, you know, and I, but shoot it a little bit like a Scorsese movie, which is sort of mixing two very different ideas, you know, with a lot of that hyper kind of camera movement and storytelling but still have a very warm center to it. And yeah, I, I, I was very blessed to get to make that film. And, uh, um, 
yeah, I mean, that was, I, again, like today, I don't know if you could get, I don't think like a studio would make a film like that, you know, uh, um, because it was, uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know, are they really making Christmas movies? I don't, I don't <laughs> no, even know. I think you're right. All I keep seeing is they're playing Elf every time. Okay, I got it. Yeah, Will Ferrell, sure. And they replay Miracle on 34th Street, et cetera. But you're right, that kind of a movie with that mix of sweet and sour, like if they made it today, they would just say, okay, strip away all the F-bombs, let's make it a PG movie, and let's, you know what I mean? Let's let's distort it a little bit. But you were going for something different, that balance of both. I mean, some of those shouting matches with Aiello and La Paglia, I mean, it's it's hysterical comedy like it's really of like those great italian american movies that scorsese had made thanks I, I yeah i really like that movie a lot it turns out well i mean look this movie is you know it's very funny it, it's once they start you, you know what's funny as a film director you can only control it so much because there's so many moving parts you know and uh and sometimes they they work out better than other films and sometimes you get a lot of I would say happy accidents and happy surprises, you know. Uh, um, but uh, yeah, that one that one turned out. I, I was very very proud of that movie. Yeah, it's it's uh, a great one, and I hope people check it out. Thanks. I'll, I'll let you out of here with one more. Let me ask you about Bad Boys. No, I, no, you could ask me a hundred questions. I'm not. Listen, this COVID. I'm not doing anything. <laughs> we can talk for ten hours. I don't care. <laughs> I Where am I going? That. Yeah, go ahead. You always need a good subject. Uh, Bad Boys, I didn't realize you wrote it before you wrote Midnight Run. I mean, there, there's no way you must have realized, hey, one day this is going to start Will Smith and Martin Lawrence and spawn this juggernaut billion-dollar franchise, right? Yeah, no, I had no clue. And, and, and uh, like I said, I, 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 wrote, I wrote that. It was originally called Bulletproof Hearts. Um. I wrote that and I, I sold it. It was a spec. I sold that screenplay to uh, uh, to Paramount originally to Don Simpson and Jerry Bruckheimer, and then you know, uh, and then I was hanging around the, the Paramount lot quite a bit, and that's how I met Marty Brest, because um, uh, Marty directed. Marty was on the lot also, and Marty had directed Beverly Hills Cop for those guys, and I first met Marty. I mean, if we jump back to Midnight Run for two seconds, I first met Marty um, because he read what would become Bad Boys, and he 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 said, "I really like this script." He says, "But I don't want to do two cop movies in a row." And uh, he said, "What else have you got?" And I said, "Well, I got this script." I says, I, "I'm on page fifty-three. It's about a modern-day bounty hunter." I was already writing Midnight Run. And he goes, can I read it? I went, yeah, but I'm only like on page 53. And he goes, well, I'll read it. I went, all right, I'll go get it. Because it was like, it was all typed on an IBM Selectric. So I had it like in a box, you know, in the car. I took it everywhere with me and wrote notes all over it. You know, this is pre-computers, you know. So I gave him the pages and he read it. And he, he said, this is terrific. How does it end? I said, I don't know. I don't use cards. I don't do any of that stuff. I just know he's going to let him go in the end. That's all I know. He's going to he's going to get the the mob guy off his back somehow, and uh, he, he's going to he's going to let him go. And and that was it. Uh, he we started developing it, and then obviously it turned into uh, the movie that it is. <laughs> it's amazing. I ends up just getting a life of its own. Um, as an accomplished yeah. painter, I'm like again, you're like a legitimately terrific painter, so you can speak to the subject far, far better than most. I'm always curious when painters and painting are portrayed on camera. 
Is there one or two that you really think got it right? For example, uh, Ed Harris did Pollock. It was very well received. Uh, Willem Dafoe was in At Eternity's Gate, Julian Snabel's uh, documentary, or excuse me, not documentary, feature film about Van Gogh. Is there one or two that you think, you know what, as a painter, that movie got it right in terms of the tone, the feel of it? Those two definitely got it right. You know, obviously, any movie about painting I watched, uh, yeah, I mean, the madness of it, you know, uh, certainly... Um, uh, in Pollock, I mean, I, I thought especially, uh, um, it's very funny. A lot of times I noticed that, uh, um, a lot of times actors portraying painters in movies, they hold the brush wrong. Um, but, uh, Pollock didn't, uh, use a brush really. Uh, he was splattering paint, you know, but he obviously did it the right way. And, and the Van Gogh movie, uh, uh, did it properly, but a lot of times, uh, sometimes you'll see like an actor holding a, a paintbrush like a pencil, and that's not how painters hold paintbrushes. They tend to hold it in the palm of their hand, and they tend to paint with their bodies more than they paint with their wrists. And uh, you know, any painter who's you, you you'll notice that that's how you get a straight line. You know, it, you know, you hold the brush in the palm of your hand. You, you you take your thumb and you hold it on the handle, and you drop your shoulder if you want to get a straight line going down. If you want to go across, you paint with your entire body. You know, you paint with your shoulder because that you know if you try to tr- control it with your wrist, your hand will start to shake. You know, if you're holding it like a pencil, but if you're holding it almost like the way you would hold a golf club, you know, and you just move your body, you'll get a straight line. It's very easy. But, you know, it's, uh, anyway. Um, yeah, I mean, look, I, I love to paint. I, I still paint. I painted all day yesterday. I, uh, you know, I've had shows at the Butler Institute. Uh, um, I never stopped. I never stopped, you know, uh, because it is, you know, as a, as a painter, you're the writer, the director, the producer, the composer. You're everything, and it's just you, basically, and you have to get it right. And uh, I, I like that kind of pro- – I do enjoy that kind of pressure. Um, you know, movie making is a whole different animal. You know, you're you're on a set, and, I, I you know, in the end, it, it is – it comes down to the director. But there's so many – like I say, there's so many moving parts. There's – Actors and cinematographers and and uh, you know crew people and uh, you know this just and yes you are sort of a you are sort of the composer a lot of times you know I I write the script that I'm directing too you know or co-write it but so you're sort of the composer to some degree and you're like the the conductor but you know you still have all those people playing their instruments beautifully you know so it's a whole different kind of thing i enjoy it but uh um i'll be honest with you i like painting a lot more because uh it's not the pressure of time like there is on a movie it's it's always like you know it's the clock you know you have to get a certain amount of shots in a certain amount of time and there's always the pressure of weather and if it starts to rain then you're behind schedule and then you know, a light blows and you lose 20 minutes. And I mean, it's just a lot of pressure. And, uh, you know, there's a part of me, I always say to myself, and I mean this honestly and legitimately, I say, I will never do this again. I, I, and I mean it when I say it, I, I will not put myself through this again. And then like 10 minutes later, like 
a shot works out beautifully, and you go, ah, you know what? I really do. I really do like this after all. <laughs> like, <you know? laughs> but but to your point, I got, I'm watching The Godfather Part Three, Coda, which was just re-released. The death of Michael Corleone, Francis Ford Coppola. Thirty years later, he's doing the opening. He's explaining. He said, "Listen, I had to redo this because at the time I was being rushed by Paramount. We were really trying to get Christmas release. I needed the money. You know, American Zoetrope wasn't working on production company, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So now I'm actually doing the version that I've always." Wanted. I'm thinking to myself, George, in what other profession would you say, all right, 30 years later, I'm going to redo this movie, I'm going to recut it, add scenes, remove scenes, like to, to your point, the agita and the, the anxiety, I, I couldn't even imagine what that's like. Yeah, it's, yeah, I, again, I mean, I don't, I never had it to the degree that he's had it. I mean, it's really funny, I watched Apocalypse Now a few weeks ago, uh, the long, uh, the, the, the redo of the, you know, it, it's so... That movie is so gigantic and so overwhelming. And, you know, it's not about madness. It is madness. You know, I was really watching it. And, you know, and then having made a bunch of movies, you know, then you watch that, you're like, no wonder he went crazy. It's like, I, it's to, 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 to conceive of it and to tackle it and, you know, and, and to, to, to execute it. It's just, I mean, I don't think you'll ever see that again. No, you know, I don't think you'll ever see that kind of because it's 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 a gigantic, gigantic personal movie. <laughs> I mean, but you know, when is that ever going to happen again? You know, uh, unless some you know multi-billionaire decides to make his own movie. You know. Uh, <laughs> but, yeah, Coppola famously you know, said, "This film isn't about Vietnam. This film is Vietnam." And you're like, "Yeah, okay, yeah, I can I see it." I don't think he w- right. Yes, I don't think he was far from wrong there. I mean, it's just utter madness, you know. Um, like all of those giant master shots. You know, to me, it was also, you know, I was looking at it and I was thinking to myself, you know, this is like one of the probably the first movies where everything was going on that I could remember, where everything was going on in the background, the middle ground. The foreground, I mean, you have two guys having a conversation, and then the middle ground, there's guys running around and stuff blowing up and people doing stunts. In the background, you got helicopters, you know, flying, like 20, 30 helicopters flying to the background, phosphorus bombs going off in the hill. This is all in one shot. And all of these things are going on, and then sometimes the camera would go 360, you know, over to something else, and another person would walk at the frame, and there's... All this stuff going, I mean, just to choreograph that is just, my God. Uh, so, um, <laughs> it's something hey, else. then I got to ask you something else. This is a 914 number, right? That's my old, that's my old area code. Where, where, where are you? I was about to say, so I'm actually in North Jersey. I'm in Bergen County in Hohokus, but our producers, and the, they're, in, they're in the city. They're in New York. So I figured you would have uh, a feel for this 914. That makes sense. You would know it well. Oh, yeah. That's my, I'm from Port Chester, New York. That was, uh, that was my, uh, that was my old area code. The second I saw it, I got homesick. <laughs> okay. Let's yeah. close with that then. You're now in Los Angeles. What do you miss most about New York, the area, whatever it is? I'm, I'm assuming you might go pizza or food, but whatever you want, whatever, whatever you miss most. What do I miss? I miss those, those, well, the pizza, I got, there's a guy here in L.A. that makes phenomenal pizza. So, uh, Vito's Pizza on La Siena Boulevard, he really gets it right. So, the pizza thing I got covered, probably those big, oh, God, my mouth is watering just thinking about it, damn it. Those big, crunchy uh, egg rolls 
that they have only like in the east. The, 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 the Chinese egg rolls I used to get in Chinatown, those big ones that were crunchy, and you dipped it into the hot mustard, and that was as close to God as you're ever going to get on earth. <laughs> we got to figure out a way to get you back here, or at least get those sent to you. All right. <laughs> We'll make it happen. George Gallo, this was an absolute pleasure. Once again, the writer of such great films as Wise Guy, Midnight Run, wrote and directed 29th Street, wrote Bad Boys, and his new film is called The Comeback Trail. Look forward to it sometime early in 2021. George, you're a prince. I can't thank you enough for the time. Have a wonderful holiday. Stay safe. Oh, you too. You too. Stay safe. And look, uh, listen, I love movies. Anytime you want to talk about movies, it do not have to be my movies. I'll talk about anybody's movies. I, I just... I love it, and you're, you're, you're a great host. And at any time, just call me. Call me in the middle of the night. Call me in the middle of the night. Say, hey, let's talk about THX 1138. Yeah, sure, you got it. I love that picture. Right. Okay. Hey, George, what happened to George uh, Lucas before he made Star Wars? How about the little art film he was trying to make? What we'll do is this. We'll do our own documentary about Hearts of Darkness. I think that, honestly, I'm not kidding. If you, if you want to come back, I would love to discuss Hearts of Darkness. For those who are unaware, that's the documentary about Coppola's making of Apocalypse Now. Think about the fact Eleanor, like his wife, Literally was was recording this guy because she realized her husband was on the edge of madness. Marty Sheen had a heart attack, and Coppola was saying, "Hey, don't don't say anything. If they, if you tell people, they're going to shut the production down." That documentary is insane to me. Oh, I know it's an, it, yeah. No, I got it again. I watched that too, not because I after I watched Apocalypse. Now I ended up watching Hearts of Darkness. It's funny you mentioned it, and yeah, it's like it's like just one big long panic attack watching <laughs> that, you know. Yeah. Oh, thank God we could laugh about uh, it. It wasn't us. Yeah. Thanks, George. You got it, buddy. Thank you so much. Mount Rushmore. All right, thanks once again to George. Like I said, I've got his home number. I've got his email address. Joe, how good was he off here? Like, we finished the interview. We went another 10 minutes. He's telling more stories about Billy Friedkin and The Exorcist and life in general. And said, hey, listen, I'll come on anytime just to talk movies. It doesn't have to be my movie. Maybe we'll do a roundtable. So fingers crossed. We're going to get Gallo back in the spring, hopefully with Bob and Morgan Freeman. How sick would that be? That would be... Incredible. Let's get Tommy Lee Jones while we're there too. You know, uh, no, <laughs> yeah. his his anecdotes and his stories post the interview, the stuff that we that we didn't put on air. Uh, it, he just someone who's been in the the business forever, and he has stories for days about all of his experiences. Yeah, you're right. He's definitely been around the block. And props to you for booking him in the first place. All right. Uh, Mount Rushmore, a holiday film here with Christmas right around the corner. Let's get this out of the way early. Yes, Bad Santa is in. I love Bad Santa. Uh, it's my favorite Christmas movie because it's such a great antidote to all those who just get tired of the, the Yuletide spirit. So that's why I love everything about it. I love Billy Bob Thornton's performance. I mean, the fact two of those guys, unfortunately, have now passed away, John Ritter and Bernie Mac. The scene where Bernie Mac is debating with the little guy and Billy Bob about the money. He keeps going back and forth saying half. Then he affects a British accent at one point, half. And like they just keep going back and forth. Amazing. When John Ritter is so squeamish when he's being informed by Bernie Mac what Billy Bob Thornton's been doing, having sex with women in the stalls. I mean, again, the physical acting of Ritter is so good. And again, it's all Billy Bob, my man. He's the best. I interviewed him years ago at ESPN. Listen to the interview here in Cinephile. You can look it up. He was 
was awesome. He tells great stories about Bad Santa. And uh, like I said, it's the perfect antidote for the Yuletide spirit. There's only so much Michael Bublé you can take. So you go ahead and watch Bad Santa. And uh, it's definitely vulgar and out there, but it, it pulls no punches. Also on my list is Scrooged. Love Bill Murray. Again, tremendous performance. I like the fact it's a takeoff of Christmas Carol, past, present, future, particularly the first half of the movie. I mean, by the end, it gets a little overdone with the sentimentality, but the first half when Murray is playing just a, a wicked, villainous TV executive, amazing. One of my favorite actors of all time, the great Robert Mitchum, plays his boss, tells him how to appeal to cats and dogs on TV. Again, fits within that vein of the anti-Christmas movie. Now, I cannot be a total Grinch, so let's get at least some sort of holiday content in there. It's a Wonderful Life. Yes, Frank Capra's movies are often derided as Capricorn but it's a pretty powerful movie, okay? George Billy wants to kill himself at one point, okay? It's not just all uh, fuzzy-wuzzies here. And by the end, how can you resist Clarence? And every time a, a bell rings, an angel gets its wings. I mean, it's a sweet movie, and it's obviously a great actor in Jimmy Stewart. And it's obviously very compelling. So it's a good family one, I think, to watch with all the kids and everyone else. And so lastly, 29th Street, which you just heard me rave about with George Gallo. It's a brilliant, brilliant movie. I wish more people had seen it. Um, Jeffrey Lyons said it best. It's a cross between Goodfellas, and it's a wonderful life. Terrific performances from Anthony LaPaglia and the late Danny Aiello. I saw it when I was 13, and I thought it was a perfect mixture of sour and sweet. So 29th Street is in there for me. Uh, there's lots of other great choices, especially if you want to say Batman Returns is a Christmas movie, in which case I may have to remove Scrooge and give some love to Tim Burton. I love that movie. I love the production design, that gothic look, Danny Elfman's music, Michael Keaton, my favorite Batman, and you got two incredible villains. Danny DeVito as this Shakespearean penguin. You know, I'm not a human being, I'm an animal. And Michelle Pfeiffer, so sexy as Catwoman. I mean, God, Michelle Pfeiffer. I mean, some of the double entendres in that movie are incredible. So... I see Joe has it here on the list. If we're going to make that a Christmas week, I would remove Scrooge. I'm not going to. I uh, just watched Elf with my kids the other day. We did enjoy James Caan and Will Ferrell. Will Ferrell perfecting the whole man-child idea. That was his, his first big breakthrough as a lead role. I thought it was Anchorman, but Elf was 03. Anchorman was 04. Definitely some good moments in there, especially Artie Lang. I forget Artie Lang plays, plays Santa. The one scene where Will Ferrell pulls his beard down and some physical comedy ensues. My kids particularly enjoyed that one. But those are my four choices. For now, the best holiday movies, 29th Street, Bad Santa, Scrooged, and It's a Wonderful Life. Joe, give us some love for uh, Polar Express. I don't know, Eyes Wide Shut. What do we got? Do you like Eyes Wide Shut as a Christmas movie? I, 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 I have to agree with you. Honest, wonderful life. I think that's the Christmas movie of all the Christmas movies. So that has to go number one on Mount Rushmore. Um, number two for me is going to be the night uh, a different Danny Elfman, Tim Burton team team up, and that's going to be the Nightmare Before Christmas. Nice. I, I got to meet Danny Elfman once. He was doing an interview and talking about uh, writing the music for that. He does all the singing in that. And it was it was truly remarkable. Then he went into The Simpsons and how he came up with the theme song for The Simpsons. He was riding in a car and it's reflective of the music. And so I thought that was really cool. But that's my number two. My number three is this had to be the first movie that I think my family and I watched repeatedly year after year. And that's A Christmas Story from 1983. Classic, funny, heartfelt, covers all the bases. And then... I'm going to give some love to the movie Klaus, 2019. Wow. It's a Netflix original. 
there was a, bu- a lot of buzz from it last year about it just being this beautiful, wonderful animated Christmas movie. I watched it a few weeks ago, and it met the hype and surpassed it. it the animation is lovely. The writing's beautiful. The story is great. It's really the origin story of Santa. So I'm gonna throw Klaus on there. But shout out to Jingle all the way. I'm in the Twin Cities right now. I'm in Minneapolis. That was filmed here. So I, I got I have to throw that as an honorable mention. I was about to say, my cousin's big fans of Jingle All the Way. I love Phil Hartman. Always tremendous. But good call on Klaus. Remember I saw it last year because I believe it was nominated. It had to be nominated for the best animated movie. So good call on Klaus, Joe. Outside the box one. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Definitely check check it out if you have the time this season. If not, definitely save it for next year. It's it would be it's probably a great movie to watch with your kids. It it's uh, I cannot recommend it highly enough. I was gonna say I, I'm pretty sure I saw it last year. At least I saw enough that I felt like I saw it. But you're right, fairly tight if I'm not mistaken. Too 80 minutes, maybe it was on Netflix, something like that. Yeah, it's a Netflix original. It's pretty short, and you know there there's no. Uh, it's all meat on the bone, you know, if that makes any sense. There's no fat. It, like, there's there's no part of the story that detracts from the main story, no added portion that doesn't need to be there. It's tight, it's concise, and it's just very, very sweet. So definitely check it out. Anyone who's listening, I absolutely love Klaus. I love it. All right, well, thank you so much for checking out Cinephile. Thanks, my man, Joe. As you heard, uh, enjoying Christmas in the Twin Cities. Have a great holidays, Joe. And thanks to George Gallo. He was tremendous. On the next episode of Cinephile, we took no weeks off this year, by the way. 52 episodes every single week. Fresh content. Hooray for us and hooray for all of you, most importantly, for listening. Please Please do spread the word. Go to Apple Podcasts, subscribe, rate, review. Next week, it's a big one, okay? I'm definitely going to go take the kids to go see Wonder Woman 1984. It's also on HBO Max, but can't get to the theater. Definitely got to see Soul. That's on Disney+. Plus. That's going to be a heavyweight for animated film of the year. And yes, I want to watch The Death of Michael Corleone, Godfather Part 3, Coda. Coppola redoing what he did 30 years ago. In addition to that, by the way, Tom Hanks at News of the World, Paul Greengrass. I mean, there's there's a lot of movies coming up the next week and a half. So this is the place to be. Cinephile, you're not going to miss anything. Uh, have a wonderful holiday season, and I'll see you at the movies. Hey, Drew Scott here, and I'm Jonathan Scott, reminding you that life's better with a home policy from American Family Insurance. They can help you get just the right protection at just the right price and help you save when you bundle home and auto. Kind of like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. It'll be just right for you. We love a custom build. American Family Insurance. Insure carefully. Dream fearlessly. Get a quote and find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance.
Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.